So here we go. Last week we looked at, at what it meant to be a, uh, as a courageous Christian in a post, uh, post-Christian, post-church world. Paul, remember Paul described it as a crooked uh, and twisted generation. Um, and remember we said, by the way, you know, uh, being courageous doesn't mean being Rambo-like, which you know, causes more damage than good. It also doesn't mean being a coward, but we are to be courageous and, and shine the light of the gospel by having the right stuff, by having the right character, the right character traits. And so what Paul did was he, he, uh, he gave us the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now this morning we're going to look at what it is that's going to keep us living the gospel-centered, courageous life. And we will do so. We will live the gospel-centered, courageous life if Jesus is the all-surpassing value and worth of our lives. We can say it like this, we'll put it on screen. I want us to know Jesus as the all-surpassing worth of our lives so that we will experience the all-surpassing effects of his worth in our lives. Yes, a mouthful. So let's uh, look at it from another angle. We will live either subconsciously or consciously uh, for whatever you have decided is of all importance, worth, and value to you, and therefore we will then experience the consequences of living for that thing or for that person. For example, uh, it can be material things like, like the perfect house. You know, therefore, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, and, and, and the decisions you make are all affected by it because this is of supreme value. This is of supreme worth to you. It can be um, how you want to be portrayed in this life. You have a, a particular picture of how you see yourself or how you want to see yourself or how you want others to see you. And so this picture is of supreme value to you and, and therefore it begins to govern how you do things, how you interact with people, or maybe even in some cases, which people you interact with. Your success in portraying this image is determined by how it makes you feel. And maybe more importantly, how others respond to you as you portray this particular image. And this can be very tricky to identify. I'll be honest with you. I I need to constantly uh, um, watch my heart to see if Jesus is the all-surpassing worth and value in my life. Or is it the church? One particular person once said, do you love the Lord of the work or the work of the Lord? Do you love the Lord of the ministry or the ministry of the Lord. And, and I, I want to be the best possible pastor for you. I want to be the best possible leader because I so desperately want us to grow deeper and deeper in knowing Jesus and making Jesus known in this world. But my all-surpassing value in life must be Him first and foremost. Because the consequence is this. If Jesus is not the all-surpassing worth and value of our lives, we will miss out on the all-surpassing effects of his worth in our lives. Because that is what's going to change us. That is what's ultimately going to satisfy us and fulfill us. In fact, some of what we're pursuing in life can seem quite empty in contrast. Let me give you one more example. Madonna who by all measures has to be one of the most successful music artists in history. Uh, In fact, the Guinness Book of Records lists Madonna as the best-selling female recording artist of all time with over 300 million records sold during her four-decade career. 
But listen or read this answer that she gives uh, in an interview with Vogue. She says this, we'll put it on the screen. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. Her drive, in other words, this, she has a picture of herself that's driving her. But listen to what she says. She says, that is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and, unin and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. That's her drive. She has this picture of that she wants to attain. And, and by all standards, we all look at her from a worldly perspective and go, well, you've done it. But it's never, it's never satisfied her. She's got this continual drive in her to accomplish this thing. And what we're going to see in our passage is that the Apostle Paul, he also had some amazing credentials that, that put him in high esteem amongst his peers. And he believed even before God himself. But that was until he truly came to know Jesus as his all-surpassing worth and value in life. And the effect of that is that all of these credentials that he had paled in insignificance. So won't you read the text with me? We'll put it on screen. Philippians chapter 3 from verse 1, just the first eight verses. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here come his credentials. Look at this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So if we're going to make Jesus the all-surpassing worth and value in our lives, so as to experience the all-surpassing effects of that in our lives, we need to put some things in their rightful places. We, we need to have a correct or a biblical view of a, of a few key areas in our lives. And so here's our plan for this morning. To know the surpassing worth of Jesus, number one, we have to have the correct view of worship. And then lastly, we will see the correct view of ourselves. Uh, this, by the way, is part one of uh, looking at the all-surpassing worth of Jesus. We'll finish it off next week. But uh, this one, we're going to unpack the scripture a little bit. But then I really want to end as practically as I can in terms of helping us identify those things that are maybe inhibiting Jesus from being the all-surpassing worth and value in our lives. So, so here we go. Number one, let's have the correct view of worship. Now, 
We are all worshipers, even if you're here and you're still kind of checking out this whole Christian thing, you're not too sure if you are a Christian, we are all worshipers because essentially worship means to find something or someone of great value or great worth, so much so that it consumes the affections of our hearts and it consumes the focus of our minds. We become so preoccupied with whatever it is, it surpasses all other things and it begins to affect all of life. Paul, like we we will see, uses the words like to glory in or to rejoice in. And so all of those phrases depict uh, the surpassing worth of whatever uh, we are worshiping. Now, these can be good things. They can be good things like family, like work, like food, like exercise. But when they become the all-surpassing objects of our, worship, of our worship, they become idols. And the thing I see in the Bible is whenever an idol is put against Jesus, that idol always fails. They never measure up. They can never deliver on what they promise, which I hope to show you at the end. So have a look at how Paul sets things straight with the Philippians. He says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is chapter three of four chapters in this book, and so when Paul says finally, he sounds like a typical preacher who says, and in conclusion, and then we know he's only kind of halfway through his sermon, I hope I don't do that, but some scholars say that's not what he's doing here. When he says finally here, he says of most importance. In other words, everything that he said uh, is going to culminate in what he's about to say, is going to culminate in this command to rejoice in Jesus. Now I'm thinking, can you really do that? Can you really command someone to rejoice or find joy in something? Like you must or you will rejoice in this? You will find all joy and satisfaction in that? Can you do that? It's not the first time and certainly not the last time Paul does this. Even in this letter, we'll see he does it again in chapter 4. In fact, different authors throughout throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, this is what they do. They command us to find joy or rejoice in the Lord. And we believe that this very book, the um, Philippians, is inspired by God. And so therefore, the conclusion is that God himself is commanding us to rejoice in him, to worship him. Many very intelligent atheists have discovered this about the Bible, and they accuse God of being an egomaniac. Or is God so insecure that he has to command people to worship him, to find joy in him? No, that's not the case at all. Imagine this for a second with me. I think I've probably shared it before, but imagine that I had never tasted peanut butter in my life before. And my wife, Janine, who, who knows me better than anyone else, knows that I will love it. Uh, so confident is she that I will love it. She goes off to Costulus and she buys one of those big uh, tubs of peanut butter and she brings it home. And I'll take one look at this big jar of mushy brown paste and I refuse. I continue to find joy in lesser surpassing things like fish paste on my toast. Until one day she can't take it anymore and she commands me to have someone. To have some, sorry. And husbands, husbands, you know that a, a happy wife equals a happy life. 
And so I take a teaspoonful of it and I put it in my mouth and it's like heaven comes down. It's like the sky is bluer, the grass is greener, the birds are chirpier. It's the most amazing thing. And so am I happy that she commanded me to have some? Absolutely, it's changed my life. It's part of my staple diet now. And so in the same way, Jesus knows, Jesus knows that he is the most glorious, all-surpassing, most valuable, most worthwhile, indescribable thing in this world that will ever happen to us. But all we want is our fish paste. All we want are our idols of money and status and power and comfort. We're so blinded by those things, so by his grace, he commands us, hey, rejoice in me. Worship me. But there is an enemy to worshiping the all-surpassing worth of Jesus. Look at verse two. Paul warns the Philippians, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so Paul is referring to false teachers who are uh, infiltrating the church. And three times he tells the Philippians to look at me, be on your guard, be aware. And the fact that he says it in the present continuous tense means that they're already there. They've already infiltrated the church. They're probably already part of the church. But notice he, he doesn't mince his words. He describes them as dogs. He describes them as evildoers. And he, and he tells us what they're doing. They're busy mutilating the flesh. And so we can then know that he's referring to Jewish false teachers who were, who were kind of spreading their own version of the gospel. We kind of call it a, a Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus, no, Jesus plus the observance of the, of the old covenant law, of the old Mosaic law, and, and circumcision, physical circumcision, and other Jewish customs. And they say, you've got to do all of that, and that will result in salvation. That will result in true worship of God. Now, calling them dogs and evildoers was very controversial back in that day because the Jews themselves would call the Gentiles, those are non-Jewish people which, who probably made up the majority of the Philippian church, they would call them dogs. So the Jews were insinuating that if you didn't hold to their beliefs, you didn't hold to their practices, you were unclean and therefore unworthy to worship God. They were called dogs because you can imagine just a, a pack of stray, mangy-looking dogs roaming the streets looking for scraps on the road. And Paul kind of turns the table on them and describes them as dogs. And he says that all of their traditions and customs mixed in with a little bit of Jesus, he says, is evil. I think, whoa, Paul, that's, that's a pretty hectic statement. So why is that? Because it completely minimizes who Jesus is. It completely minimizes what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. It says, hey, Jesus, thank you so much for what you went through on the cross. Really appreciate it. But now I kind of have to prop up what you fail to complete by being on the cross, by me doing all of these other things in my own effort, in my own strength. Only then will I be ready to be saved. Only then will I be ready to worship God. As soon as you take anything away from Jesus and have to add or compensate with your own efforts, our worship of Jesus becomes flawed. It becomes evil. Jesus gets only some of the glory and we get the other half. 
So Paul shifts gears and he shows them and he shows us the correct way to worship. This way of worship glorifies the full surpassing worth of Jesus. Look at verse three. He says, for we are the circumcision, speaking to Gentiles, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the circumcision Paul is talking about here is in contrast to the physical circumcision in verse two. He's talking about a spiritual circumcision, a cutting away of our sins and our sinful hearts. He says an external procedure, I won't go into detail, and external observances of the law and other Jew, and Jewish traditional customs is not capable of doing this. So how does the spiritual circumcision come about? He tells us by the Spirit of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes and he, he cuts away our sin, which is an internal condition, and he empowers us to worship and glory in Christ Jesus as opposed to attempting to do it in our own strength and in our own ability. We can say it like this. God in his absolute kindness, in his absolute grace and mercy comes himself to help us worship and adore him. Because he knows left in our natural spiritual condition, we'll never be able to do it. He knows left to our own ability, we'll never be able to taste that Jesus is the ultimate peanut butter, as sacrilegious as that sounds. But you get what I'm saying. Left to ourselves, we would never be able to see, to truly see the all-surpassing worth of Jesus and glory in him and absolutely rejoice in him. Now, I'm also aware that uh, maybe the connotation of, of worship uh, brings uh, the concept of singing uh, to our minds, but that's not what Paul is talking about at all. He, uh, he's talking about a life, uh, our life as worship. You see, when the Holy Spirit uh, infiltrates our lives and he opens our eyes to see the all-surpassing worth of Jesus, that will begin to affect every single area of our lives. Our very lifestyles begin to glory in. Our very lifestyles begin to rejoice in Jesus, begin to demonstrate who we are glorying in. When Jesus becomes the all-surpassing worth in your life, it brings perspective on all of the things in our lives that we are tempted to make all-surpassing worth and value, like our finances. We become more generous as opposed to selfish. Our families feel more loved and cherished because we're not so uh, preoccupied with the bottom lines, not so preoccupied with work. Our anxieties about life get more perspective because we're no longer leaning on our, our own strength and our own ability, but, but now on the Spirit of God within us. See, I believe Jesus to kind of change one of John Piper's famous statements. I believe Jesus is most glorified when we are most dependent on him. Jesus is most worshiped by us when we are most dependent on him for everything. That way he gets all the glory, he gets all the credit, we don't. Which then leads to point two. In order to know the all-surpassing worth of Jesus, we need a proper perspective on our lives or of our lives. And so, what is the correct view to have? There are so many factors that have influenced the way we see ourselves. 
maybe your, your past experience in life, your socioeconomic status, how your culture defines the role of men and women, your upbringing, your previous church experiences and, and what you were taught, your own inner voice, what you tell yourself about yourself, what you think about yourself. And then, of course, there's the present times that we're living in. What does this current world, this current culture say is the correct view that we are to have about ourselves? And I think it says, hey, despite your, your age, despite your sex, despite your socioeconomic status, you are of all surpassing worth and value. And that either fuels a very arrogant view of ourselves or it compounds how bad we feel about ourselves. So culture says, hey, you are all of all surpassing worth. You are the king of your own castle. And some go, yes, I know, just look at me. You know, look at what I've accomplished. Look, look at my perfect family. Look at my career. Look at how nice a person I am. But for others, it's condemning. For others of us, we don't feel any worth. We say, I don't, I don't feel I'll ever measure up. I don't feel I'll ever attain anything. It kind of fuels a victim mentality. And so whether we take an arrogant view of ourselves or a condemning view of ourselves, the common denominator is you, it's us. This preoccupation with ourselves, it's all about you. And then we take how we see ourselves and we project it onto God. I can know God because Look at who I am. Look, look at how nice a person I am. Or I can never know God because I don't even like myself. Why would God find me acceptable to him? So let's see how Paul viewed himself and then see how he changed to a more biblical view. Look at verse four. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. In other words, you think you're good. So he takes a bit of the, the arrogant view of himself. He says, you think you're good? You think you're good enough before God? You think you can boast about your credentials and, and your achievements? He says, I am way better. And what he's about to do now is, is unfold a very impressive pedigree or resume according to the Jewish culture of the day. Look at verse five. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. So this was a sign of God's covenant with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, this is one of the most distinguished tribes in uh, the, the nation of Israel, uh, also because it had the holy city Jerusalem within its borders. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he, he never compromised on his roots or his heritage. He was supremely proud of his roots. Uh, many Jews in those days were, were busy compromising on their heritage um, to kind of live the, the more licentious life of the Romans, you know, kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll according to that context. He goes on and says, as to the law, he says, the Pharisee. And the Pharisees were an elite bunch of religious guys who lived incredibly strict and disciplined lives according to the old covenant law. In fact, the word Pharisee means separated ones. Look, we're separated from you. Look at how holy you are. Look at how we live and look at how you live. He says, as to zeal, in other words, just how passionate was he? about being a Pharisee, just how passionate was he about living according to the law? He says, a persecutor of the church. 
a persecutor of this new way that you're saved by grace. He was, so he wasn't just an intellectual, he was an activist. And so he says, as to righteousness under law, he says, blameless. You can't find fault with me. So those are some incredibly bold statements. Paul would have been well-respected, almost revered for those qualifications and those actions within the Jewish community. And so what happened? How did he get a new perspective on his life? Look at verse seven. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing. It surpasses all of those things. It surpasses those credentials because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Whatever he previously thought good about himself or what culture considered gain, or in other words, uh, or benefited or advantage, he considered loss, absolute loss. It was a profit that was actually a loss. Why? Are, are these bad things? Well, obviously persecuting the church uh, and trying to attain righteousness before God in your own effort and strength was, was bad. I mean, he called the false teachers evildoers for that. But being a Hebrew of Hebrews, coming from the tribe of Benjamin, it's not bad. It's just a question of how much emphasis, how much value, how much worth are you placing in those things? If we had to ask ourselves the question, what would you like to gain in this life? What would you like to gain in this life? And don't, don't go all goody two shoes on me just because we're in a church service and say Jesus. Like be honest, what would you like to gain? Think about some of the things that you've dreamt about. Think about some of the things that you've expressed to family and friends, some of the things that you've even prayed for. I'm, I'm willing to bet most of them are good things, like you know, maybe a promotion, a raise, better health, or uh, you know, a better place to stay, maybe even a wife or a husband or starting of a family. But are we able to say, wait, 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 more than anything, more than anything, I want to know Jesus more. Paul was willing to suffer for it too. Just remember, he's writing this from prison. He's writing this chained to a Roman soldier for telling people about Jesus, for making Jesus known. Here's the secret. Paul refers to Jesus as his Lord. So the question really is about the lordship over your life. Who or what is dictating your life to you? What is of most value or what is of most value and worth to you will determine your life. It will determine your goals. It will determine your experiences, your ambitions, and your values in life. Everything else takes its cue from whatever is mastering or is Lord over your life. So as we finish off, Let's take some time now to identify those things that are not only determining who we are, but who we actually worship, because I believe you are what you worship. You heard the statement, you are what you eat, but I believe you are what you worship. And then we'll contrast them with Jesus and see how he surpasses them. Now, I didn't make these up. I got a lot of help from a scholar by the name of Robert Thune. And so we're gonna warm up on some diagnostic questions, as he says. Um, and these will help us identify 
uh, idols in our lives or, or even just expose the fact that we do have idols, that we possibly have idols in our lives. So the first question goes like this. Uh, early on, that's early on maybe in a relationship or early on in a conversation, you know, maybe you're having a conversation at the, you know, after the service with some coffee with someone. Early on, what do I want to make sure people know about me? What is one of the first things that you want people to know about you? Something that you maybe achieve, something that you do, or something you know, ab- about you as a person. Number two, who can make my day with their affirmation or crush me with their disapproval? Who is that? Maybe it's a colleague, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's just people generally. Number three, what gives me a feeling of peace and security? If I could just, if I could just have this, then all would be well. If I could just be with this person, then, then I would, all would be well. That, that, that's where my security is. If I could just attain this, or if I could have a particular lifestyle. Number four, what distracts me or bothers me when it's not just right? You ever catch yourself saying, well, this is not quite up to my standard. Or I should have done this myself. Lastly, what do you daydream about? What do you daydream about? When you're lying awake in bed just before you fall asleep, where does your mind go to? You know, is, it a, is it a possession of sorts? A position of sorts? A lifestyle of sorts? Now, some of the answers to these questions uh, may not be bad. Like I said, may not be bad in and of themselves. But if they're occupying the place that God's supposed to be occupying in our lives, then they have become idols. And then we are setting ourselves up for hurt and disappointment. So let's dig a little bit deeper now and identify the source of those idols. What is the real source underneath those answers that we've just come up with? Again, Robert Thune says this. He says, most of our visible sins and surface idolatries are manifestations or simply expressions of one of four core idolatries or four core idols. We'll put this table up on screen for you. I'm not entirely sure who came up with it, but I know Tim Keller does a very good job in explaining it. Um, So you can see there on the table that the column on uh, the left says, what I seek. Um, Those are the four core idols pretty much under everything we worship. So there's the God of comfort, the God of approval, the God of control, and the God of power. And then all the other columns are the repercussions of worshiping that particular idol. So for instance, if you worship the God of comfort, what does that mean? It means that you're always looking for maybe your your privacy or a lack of stress or or freedom. Now I realize that that could describe most of us here in the room, but this is is more than that. This This is the predominant drive in you. This is the thing that is driving you in life. You're just seeking your comfort, your privacy, or or, or lack of stress. Now, there is a cost to everything we worship, and the cost to worshiping the the God of comfort is reduced productivity, which makes sense, right? You You probably like to procrastinate or kind of seek the easy way out of doing something. The greatest nightmare for you if you worship the God of comfort is stress and demands. 
just constantly uh, people asking or, or uh, needing your time, needing your advice, asking you questions, putting demands on you. How do people feel around you? Those who are in relationship with you, if you worship the God of comfort, how do they feel? They feel hurt. Why do they feel hurt? Because they feel neglected. They don't feel like they are of most importance to you because you're, you're probably also a little bit distant because you just don't want any more demands. The God of comfort does not deliver comfort. It, it delivers boredom. It delivers boredom. There's a big difference between you know, working a hard week and then finally lying down on the couch on that Saturday afternoon, knowing that, hey, I, I, I've worked a, a long, hard week, and now I'm just going to relax, as opposed to, to lying on that couch, having procrastinated, and then you, re, you start feeling bored. Boredom is not relaxation. Boredom is frustration. What about the God of approval? That means you, you're constantly seeking affirmation from your boss, your colleagues, your, your wife or your husband, your friends. You're constantly seeking love and as a, as a result probably find love in the wrong relationships. You, you constantly need relationships around you and so you, you're probably in and out of relationships. The, the cost is that you're, you're less independent because you're constantly wanting people around, you're constantly wanting their affirmation so you're doing stuff for them all the time. Your greatest nightmare would be to be rejected. Not feeling that you measure up or that you're, you're part of something is, is devastating to you. How do those around you feel if you worship the God of approval? They feel smothered. They constantly feel like, oh, they, they, they have to keep affirming you and, and constantly encouraging you. What does it deliver? What does this God deliver? It delivers cowardness. You think, well, why is that? You drive home after work one day and you think, oh, why did I give in to that? Why did I not stand up for what I believed? Why, did I not, why didn't I voice my opinion over there? It's because you didn't want conflict. And so you compromise, and so you feel like a coward. What about the God of control? This means you're probably a, a very self-disciplined person. You, you have your routine. Uh, you're a very certain person. You, you like certainty. You have very high standards for yourself and probably for others. The cost, loneliness, why? Because other people just, you know, you kind of feel misunderstood. People just don't understand the, the standards that you have. Spontaneity, you hate spontaneity because it means you're, that you're out of control. And so you hate uncertainty. How do people around you feel? They feel condemned. Why do they feel condemned? They just feel like they can never attain to your particular standards. And so as a result, worshiping the God of control doesn't give you control, it gives you worry. It gives you anxiety. What if, what if this disrupts my routine? What if this happens and, and, and I don't feel in control anymore? You feel anxious. And lastly, power. It means you're always after success, you're always after winning, you're always wanting to be the one who influences. You, you like to lead, but along with that comes the burden and the responsibility of then being put into that leadership position. Your worst nightmare is to be humiliated. What if people don't listen? 
What if the project fails? Then I look bad. How do the people around you feel? They feel used. Because they're just simply a stepping stone to get to where you want to get to. Does it deliver power? No, it delivers anger. Anger and frustration. Anger that you, you didn't have your own way. Anger that they didn't listen. And so you feel frustrated. So those are the four core idols underneath some of the more surfacey behavior that we have. And usually we have one dominant idol in our lives, but normally sometimes there can be a combination of one or two. But now the most important question is, well, how do we replace them with Jesus? How does Jesus become the all-supreme, surpassing idol in our lives that affects everything that we do, including our relationships? We need to repent. And I know that sounds like a very christian statement to make, um, but again, uh, Robert Thune suggests a couple of practical ways. Number one, he says, identify your idol, and hopefully as we went through that table, you've been able to do that. But he means name the idol. Come before God and name the idol and say, Father, I come before you confessing that I have been worshiping the God of comfort or power or control. Number two, identify the danger of the idol. Because the, the danger is to go, oh, what's so bad about comfort? What's so bad about wanting to be in control? It's because we can see what it's done in our own lives. We can see the impact that it's had on our relationships. We've hurt people. Number three, expose its weaknesses. Idols always promise something, but they never deliver. Oh, it promised me comfort, but it delivered boredom. It, it promised me power, but it delivered anger. Lastly, replace your idol with Jesus. And we do this by rejoicing, as Paul commanded us earlier, by rejoicing in the supremacy of Jesus over our idols, over everything. So we go to the Bible and we say, well, how does the Bible describe Jesus as more supreme than my idol? We find a verse and we meditate on it and we celebrate it. So for example, if... If the idol of control is your God, I would look to Daniel 4, verse 34. Look at this. This is in fact Nebuchadnezzar um, testifying this about God. He says, his dominion, his rule or his control is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. There's some perspective for us. And he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, you and I, and none can stay his hand. No one can stop him from doing what he wants to do or no one can accuse him and say, what have you done? God's gonna do what he wants to do. God's gonna do what he wants to do in your life and through your life and in this world. What about our plans? Proverbs 16, verse nine, have a look at this. It says, the heart of man plans his way. So we, that's what we do, right? It's good. Make plans, plan your way. But the Lord establishes his steps. At the end of the day, who's gonna have his way? It's God, he's gonna establish your, your steps. So it's futile to think that we're actually in control of anything. In fact, other verses in the Bible say that, that our very next breath comes from God. 
He is supremely large and in charge and in control. This sunrise is incredible news because of who he is. Because he is our loving heavenly father. He has unconditional grace and love and wisdom toward us. Lay aside our control and embrace a life of absolute dependency on him. Finally, can you see freedom is the ultimate effect of having Jesus as the all-surpassing worth and value in your life? It's freedom because in him is all comfort. Don't look for it anywhere else. In him is all comfort. In him is all affirmation. In him is all control. In him is all the power. Go to him first and allow that to give you perspective on everything else in this life. Set yourself free from the burden of worshiping idols that cannot deliver and worship the true God who is always faithful to his promises. He will always deliver. Let's make him and let's trust that he will be the all-surpassing worth and value in our lives. And let's enjoy the effect of that in our lives. Amen. 